This is a Suno India production and you are listening to Beyond Charmina. For this episode, uh, I thought we'll do something very different. I think some of you who have attended my walks also know that Anirudh Kanishetty who has just launched his book Lords of the Deccan on South Indian history uh is also my friend and is also somebody whose work I really like uh so we have with us today Anirudh uh hi Anirudh yes no problem you are of course always uh, I was actually really really uh, uh hoping to get you on the show from much longer unfortunately that didn't happen but yeah so welcome to beyond charminar my pleasure matt so nice to be here at last uh, yet another new project that you and i are doing it's quite exciting ha huh. so in fact uh, i would actually waste a lot of time with introductions and stuff because uh, today for this episode we actually won't talk much about hyderabad in general because i mean i, I know i know it sounds a little bit uh, off topic but then the thing is to actually understand south telangana hyderabad history we also need to generally understand south indian history which i believe you know most of us tend to really uh, ignore and overlook especially because of how our history textbooks are in general and i think uh, all of the time i have spent talking to anirudh and the uh, the walks that both of us conduct together i've learned a lot also about you know how history has shaped up south india so anirudh we are here to talk about anirudh's new book lords of the deccan which actually talks about uh, south indian history between the 6th and the 11th centuries no right 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 yes i actually uh, have to collect my signed copy also from you by the yeah. way so hopefully <laughs> uh, which i maybe i should just yeah get it tomorrow before you go so anyway i like for you to you know in the maybe first couple of minutes explain your background because i because you know both of us are actually from non history background both of us got into history uh while doing something as like i am a journalist although i started writing about history etc etc but then uh, yeah tell us something about yourself who are you like a typical telugu boy or you have something else that we should know about and how you got into history oh yes yes uh, on on paper i am very much the the ideal telugu boy uh, i studied engineering from bitspelani goa campus uh, i uh, i have a minor in philosophy economics and politics um and uh, i had uh, very good grades throughout school so yeah very very much a good telugu boy but uh at some point in college uh, i didn't i mean i didn't have an attendance requirement in college uh, so i i used to just like you know bunk classes to play video games and um, uh, a lot of the games that i played were like you know, based on like european history uh, you know like there's a lot of really interesting european history strategy games out there um and that kind of like got me reading more about you know ancient greece ancient rome and that's when it kind of occurred to me that there isn't as much interesting material available about ancient india um so i began to like start reading you know like these dense academic works um and sort of like just write about them in, in a more kind of accessible format initially through blogs uh, and then gradually by 2017 or so i started making podcasts and so on um and then through that uh, through various like connections uh, manu pillai um who wrote uh, rebel sultans you know the book over the deccan sultanates um uh, actually introduced me to uh, jagannath his publishers uh, and they commissioned this book and um that's how i ended up like actually doing some even more like um, heavy duty research you know driven by uh, primary sources as well as by secondary literature and up writing lots of the deccan so since we are in telangana so i believe maybe i i believe as somebody who also lives in hyderabad and who's been also researching about hyderabad telangana uh let's maybe start with if 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 you think if you think that works maybe start with telangana and then you know maybe you can just take us around the through your book 
and also give us like general thoughts about what why south indian history especially given the fact that we have such major dynasties that also rule you know i believe some of them even went up right north yes yes quite a few actually uh, went north yeah so you know why does that not tend to show up in our general history readings well unlike when you have the mughals oh mighty mughals came into power everything yeah yeah i mean um it, i i can't inhabit the minds of the of the people who like set our set our history syllabi um but i think there's like maybe two or three possible reasons right the first perhaps is that uh in in the decade immediately after independence you know we we the you have to keep in mind that in 1947 um thinking of india as a single unified country was still a very new concept i mean you yourself have, have been researching uh, for example you've been researching about how um hyderabad state was kind of incorporated into the into the republic of india right um so i can imagine that you know in the in that decade and the one immediately after that um you have a new generation of children who are coming of age in a, in a newly independent country um then you have to give them a sense that there is this uh, ancient continuity and this commonality with every other part of the subcontinent right um and i think that the strategy that um, that you know the writers of the textbooks kind of hit upon then was that you know let's focus on the big empires that you know managed to bring most of india under their sway so um if you look at the way that we study history it's it's always focused on these big gangetic empires which like every now and then they manage to they, they they emerge and they suddenly like come out and they conquer a big swathe of the subcontinent and then sooner or later they collapse but the focus is always on these um so these these ephemeral moments of imperial unity uh rather than upon you know the much more interesting regional dynamics which are also i mean they're a little more complex i think to kind of understand um and i i get why you know in the 20th century we didn't really fully understand these trends we don't understand what is it that sets apart these centuries where you know there are no major empires and instead you have a bunch of uh, very interesting regional kingdoms we didn't really understand them well enough um because the focus was really on um looking at very limited primary sources just imagine like you know imagine a thousand years from now uh, we're sitting and looking looking at ads written by you know by the bjp in delhi uh, and trying to like write a history of the entirety of india based on that uh you'd obviously think that uh, you know the ruling party was uh, the most effective one that ever lived uh, and you know they totally forget about you know any any mistakes or any um dissent that may have been anywhere else in the country at the time uh you really would not get a sense of the lives of the of the, of the billions of people um who are living in different parts of the country um and the same we actually face more or less the same puzzle when you're writing about uh, my period of interest the medieval period from 600 to 1100 because all that survives are land grants uh, made by kings um, and these land grants at least on the surface are all very formulaic you know they're all about oh this dynasty was so great and in this dynasty there was a king and he was extremely sexy uh, and he fought a lot of battles and everybody wanted to sleep with him uh, and all the gods loved him and then he had a son and then he died um obviously if you look at history only from that lens you know it's it's going to be very easy to dismiss it right i think to this day if you look at uh, ncert textbooks you know they'll mention in one page they'll mention okay so there was a pallava dynasty there was a chalukya dynasty there was a chola dynasty but there 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 seems to be a a lack of awareness about the fact that these dynasties are actually extremely innovative and the way that they they rise and expand and fall is actually tied into much 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 grander um historical dynamics that very profoundly shape southern india um 
and that's really what my book tries to tackle uh, you asked a little earlier like how telangana is connected to all of this um and i think that there's a tendency again in, in among modern south indians right because uh because i think partially because of the fact that we're all divided into linguistic states now uh, which of course made a lot of sense when you know, when it was first proposed um but if you look at the way that we think about our 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 identities today uh, you are only a good citizen of karnataka if you speak a good kannada um and you believe in the great kannada kings similarly you know you're only a good tamilian if you speak tamil and um, you know and and you believe in the great tamil kings uh, and so on so on um but historically south india has always been a very interconnected region um and when i say that i i don't just mean connected to the world which it very much was because it's this great peninsula that projects into the indian ocean right so you have these deep connections that go from the coast all the way far inland um and you also have within the context of south india itself um there are these different linguistic zones which are all kind of overlapping and all interacting with each other and people very often were multilingual you know they were multicultural um in fact to this day there are still like enclaves and suggestions and hints of this in various major cities in south india if you look at bangalore for example bangalore has a tremendous population of uh, telugu and tamil immigrants who moved there from as early as like the 18th century not recently in fact someone even recently in passing told me that uh, what do you call the dmk stalin apparently the family also has telugu roots so i was like not oh. surprised ha huh, ha huh. interesting so i mean yeah that says a lot right if we're talking about somebody who's dominating politically and uh, who's not i mean in that sense that's anyway so the other thing is um so just 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 before we go out i'll give everybody a little bit of for especially for people who are maybe uh, listening for the first time uh hyderabad was founded in 1591 so that makes hyderabad 430 something years old and then uh telangana so hyderabad as a city was founded in 1591 but about 715518 is when the golconda dynasty was established so that's like 500 something years old and then before that you have the kakatiyas from telangana who were established in the 11th century Uh, around yeah, so roughly yeah we have some evidence from yeah, yeah around that time or a little earlier ha huh, so i th- that's what i wanted to actually maybe ask you so that, so that you can expand maybe why don't you maybe let's let take us through uh history in that sense in seven from in the 7th or 6th centuries what existed between north and south was there like some kind of cohesion or how many empires were there roughly on you know yeah So so the thing is I actually think that um, yeah I mean there is a tendency to think of that Deccan region as being between north and south right um but like imagine if you if you describe France as being between Spain and Germany um whereas in reality France has its own kind of unique geography it's got its own culture and while it does play an important role in like european exchanges and it's involved in like all these european battlefields it's a very distinct region of its own and you have to study and understand it as such and the same applies also to the deccan you know um it it is it is a very unique region uh, i would say the deccan is roughly um the the elevated plateau which extends from uh, the narmada all the way down south to the kaveri um and it's a very geographically diverse kind of landmass you know uh, in between it's got uh, the great river valley of the godavari which is actually the third largest uh, basin in, in the entire indian subcontinent so it's only uh, it's only exceeded in size by the gangetic plains and the indus uh, river valley 
um so you simultaneously have this 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 agrarian and riverian productivity uh, you also have various like kinds of forests you have uh, the western ghats at one end with the you know the dense coastal rainforests uh, you have the you have the coastal belt on the west coast uh, and of course the deccan is also connected on the east to like via the eastern ghats uh, to the coastal belt of the east coast um and such a geographically diverse region you know with, with many kind of uh, hill formations and many different kinds of uh, rock that were actually like formed millions of years ago um was inevitably going to have many diverse forms of polities and political organization um so when my book starts uh, around the the 6th century uh you already begin to see some very important kingdoms emerging uh, one of them are the kadambas of banavasi who are based among uh, the hills of um, of the of the western ghats uh, or just near the western ghats city i would say close to the shimoga region roughly to give you a sense of if you know where that is um and then of course you have the gangas who are based around kolar uh, which of course is 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 a region surrounded by these granite hills in south karnataka um and you you see uh, my book really focuses on the chalukya dynasty who once again are one of these dynasties that emerges in this very kind of uh, rocky and you know fortified area uh, namely the malaprabha river valley which is in northern karnataka um so all these kingdoms right they 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 seem to emerge in places that are um that aren't exactly like conducive to human habitation these aren't like these fertile agrarian areas in fact instead their areas that are very much torn by war and uh, whose landscape is very suitable for making fortifications uh and then once you have this like centralized political authority emerging these guys begin to go out and they go and conquer like fertile river valleys that's what they usually do um so the gangas for example expand into the belur region uh and the uh, the chalukyas like extend their control over much of the malaprabha river valley and then um gradually begin to enter like the krishna uh, river region um and then gradually they kind of you know defeat the kadambas and they do this in like fairly violent ways i mean we have a tendency to think of like you know pre modern india as being some kind of a utopian land until quote unquote invaders from central asia showed up mm, but like me um, Uh, yeah <laughs> um but if you actually look at the sources you know if you look at the primary sources um they're very disturbing in terms of how graphic the violence that they describe is and you know talking about people's in why was it so violent um i mean i would say that pre modern the pre modern world just generally was a violent place i mean which part of the world was not violent, mm. right um and it's, it true. seems especially if you're going to force people to pay taxes Uh, they are not going to give it to you for free <laughs> you go to have to go and bloody fight yeah. them for it like terrify them or like yeah, overawe and charm them into giving you money in order to send so that's not very different from what people accuse uh, muslims quote unquote muslim invaders are doing in that sense absolutely not i mean that's the thing um i feel like such accusations are based on a lack of evidence and a lack of knowledge uh, of of what the sources actually tell us about india before the coming uh, of you know various turkic led polities and so on um because of course i mean you there is ample evidence of political violence in 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 ancient india in fact professor opinder singh has actually written a, a magnificent book about it and violence was something that was i mean it was a, it was a it was a great preoccupation of uh, if i would say like uh, of political science or the equivalent of it uh, and of ethics and of morality i mean um, the mahabharata and the ramayana themselves are so preoccupied with violence and the cost of war and so on so it is really surprising to me that anybody would make the claim that india was not a violent place because it just shows that they don't know anywhere near as much about indian culture as they claim to um but i mean that's a bit of a tangent so um basically the chalukyas as they emerge onto the onto this onto the geopolitical scene uh they gradually extend their authority over these very vast expanses you know they they begin 
to extend their authority into Maharashtra. Uh, we know of like various like powerful groups as as far north as Ellora, who are actually uh, commissioning these cave temples that are inspired by uh, you know the sculptures of the Chalukya cave temples that are being made in Badami. Um, so once again, like I was saying a little earlier, right? How if, if you look at these, if you look at if you look only at the inscriptions left by kings, you get a very limited perspective of what the period was actually like. But once you start reading other sources, like especially if you look at art historical sources, um, then you begin to sense that there is much more complex dynamics emerging. Um, and I would actually interpret this as um, the dynasty is extending its power and it's extending its charisma and its appeal in such an effective way that people who are living like literally hundreds and hundreds of miles away are commissioning such an expensive cave temple to kind of ingratiate themselves to the imperial court, right? Um, so clearly there's a, there's some something new happening here. There's a, there's a new kind of state that is being formed. Uh, there's a new kind of a royal and imperial culture where, you know, the kings are using the charisma of the gods and of religion uh, to extend their authority into places that has never really seen royalty and kingship before. And as a result of that... Yeah, that sounds not very different from what's happening these days. I mean, yeah, I mean, one, one can really have a long discussion in terms of like how uh, how much the politics of India has really fundamentally changed in terms of how these patronage networks are established, in terms of how you build an image of like political charisma and you get people to buy into it. Um, and I feel that that's actually, I mean, a lot of people ask me very often, um, why should we care about Indian history? Why, why is history relevant to us today? Uh, and my answer to that is like, it's saying like, why is economics relevant to us? Why is science relevant to us? You know, you cannot understand the world if you don't understand how the world came to become the world. And once you look back into the past, you'll always be shocked and impressed at how um, and how similar the past world was to us. Um, there'll be many things that are different, of course. Uh, the moral worlds that they inhabited were very different. But the fundamental dynamics of power are very much the same as what we're used to today. Thank you so much for this, uh, for explaining that. In fact, uh, that makes a lot more sense, especially if you take into account contemporary history of, well, South Indian history also for that matter. So, um, tell us something a little bit about uh, the 11th century Kakatiya history so that we can... so. I thought if you explain that, maybe we can explain uh, how, you know, how from the 11th century you have the Kakatiyas, from the Kakatiyas, you have the so post Kakatiyas, you have uh, Tughlaq and then, you know, that sequence. But I, but I thought, you know, uh, where do we see Telangana, Telangana history coming in from, like, from uh, at least according to you, like, I want I want to know. Uh, when we say Telangana culture, how far can we go back? Right. So, so we have to make a leap then. So, we, we, were, we were, what we were talking about earlier in terms of the emergence and all that was in the, in the you know, 6th, 7th centuries. And now if you leap about like 500 years from then, the Deccan is a place that is totally transformed because at the time, you know, it, all these new kinds of kingdoms in Karnataka were relatively, you know, they were relatively fresh. Um, the the play, the area was not uh, you know the, the landmass was not as urbanized you don't have as many towns you don't have as many temples but by the 11th century we are looking at a society and a polity of of vast scale um, if you look at the inscriptions of the later Chalukyas who ruled the who, who ruled the Deccan in the 11th century um, you'll see like dozens upon dozens of, of cities and towns mentioned in their inscriptions um, you'll see their vassals who are commissioning temples so clearly uh, they have also become wealthy influential enough to like build their own uh, kind of structures and more importantly also have a political economy in terms you know the architects sculptors and all that who are like moving across these very wide areas who are building temples for many many patrons uh, we have emergence of like new kinds of coinage new kinds of taxes uh, various new local families that are emerging and participating in the political system 
atmosphere um, and they're all like you know interacting with uh, with the wider world uh, we have uh, evidence of you know like various um, um, devices even that were imported from as far away as arabia uh, we have uh, evidence that these deccan parties were trading uh, with china even so they're living in a, in a in a world that is urbanizing that is globalizing where population is growing um, at a pretty unprecedented scale um now the kakadiyas are one of these relatively initially they are relatively minor local families um that get involved in the grander politics of the deccan um they start off as these uh, basically these one among many many groups of chiefs in the telangana region who swear uh, loyalty to the chalukya court and who help them out militarily as as mercenaries or as vassal lords um and they participate in various wars that the chalukyas have against the chola empire of tamil nadu uh we have evidence that uh, there's a, there's one of these early kakatiya rulers i think either prola or beta one of those guys um he actually claims that he burned the gate of the city of kanchi and he did this while his uh, you know while his over his chalukya overlord general was there with him um which is which is quite interesting right so clearly that this military service was a way for them to rise up in the world and again it's difficult not to see a parallel uh, to later deccan history if you look at the qutub shahis these guys also are basically you know small time warlords who become important by serving militarily in the court of a, of a more powerful monarch um right so so that's how the kakatiyas really emerge onto the historical scene uh, but it seems that this connection that they had in terms of like making them themselves useful useful to the chalukyas um became very very uh, monetarily uh, useful to them you know it became um, rich and powerful and they began to uh, through exposure through this to, to this much more uh, urbanized and cosmopolitan center that was the chalukya court um they began to get some ideas as to like how can we establish our own kingdom um and this opportunity comes for them roughly in the 12th century or so when the chalukyas are facing uh, various internal struggles you know other vassal dynasties like the hoysalas and the yadavas that are just you know they're just they're just saying we no longer need chalukya authority fuck off you know i'm sorry you'll probably have to answer that uh, and they're going around yeah, uh, and, and they're and they're going around doing their own thing uh, and the and the kakadiyas also seem to right. rise up and say you know let's also do the same thing um the kakatiyas now you know they're very often known as this kind of shudra dynasty uh, and that is certainly how they would present themselves later on uh, but at least in the in the real reign of the earlier kings especially ganapati deva for example uh, they present themselves very much using this uh, language of you know upper class upper caste imperial charisma that the chalukyas had uh, so they will you know they will boast oh. about you know we have made this temple and we have given this land to these mm-hmm. brahmins and so on and they don't necessarily talk about their lineage so, uh, as much then then some really interesting things begin to happen with the kakatiyas okay so um they begin to kind of realize that you know the chalukyas are long gone and it's time for us to find a, a new language of power that is no longer there is more suited to our local conditions um so they begin to kind of like appeal to the local chiefs of rayalaseema of telangana they go and invade uh, you know the vengi which is the coastal andhra belt um and they start to you know they once again start to like initially they start to patronize uh, like various ancient shiva temples that you see along uh, along the east along the east coast um and various groups that that again are kind of becoming militarily successful and politically successful because of their involvement with the kakatiyas gradually begin to build temples in telangana itself as well as uh, various tanks and irrigation systems uh, which is really what the kakatiyas are most famous for so if you look at the ramappa temple at palampet uh, which recently you know was the a unesco world heritage site um it is it is built by a kakatiya vassal and a general of the richerla dynasty who also built along with it a massive tank a reservoir 
Um, and like through these actual like hydraulic engineering feats, uh, they were gradually able to transform the interior of Telangana into an agriculturally productive region. Um, and once again, like I try to, I try to like draw this parallel to the modern day, right? Very often when we think about medieval India and medieval Indian kings, we think of them as these kind of like boring, unimaginable, obscure characters. But we are talking about a dynasty that is actually using um, technology and engineering, as well as the medieval world understood it, to fundamentally transform the landscape that they ruled over. That's very, very similar to what our modern polities do. Um, so, like I said, the past is a very alien world, but also the, the similarities it has uh, to our world are always very, very fascinating to me. I always stuck to Hyderabad's history. So, my knowledge of Hyderabad mainly starts from, even if I, you know, try to get, get the foundations back, I always mostly end up circling back to the late 13th centuries or the early 14th centuries, you know, mostly post Kakatiya, Tughlaq time. By the way, for those of you who are listening, uh, I would recommend that you maybe go back to the podcast series and look up other uh, foundational episodes so that if you you know want more context. But uh, yeah, I, I actually don't know what South, what is happening in South India in the 7th to 11th centuries at all. Because mm. I don't think that that much information is even there in our school textbook. Like we have zero idea of what is there, right? Right, right. For you know, for uh, the for, for the average person. So yeah, yeah so yeah, so uh, let's circle back to what you were saying. Hmm. So South India, you're talking about all of these uh, empires were there, and I actually want to know um, history. History, if you look at our history, most of the narratives are most of the narratives are more more or less circling around. Uh, North Indians coming, the North Indian dynasties coming and taking over South. So this whole thing of where, where we have people also going up North to conquer is mm-hmm. barely there. So mm-hmm. what happens in that between the seven to eleven centuries? In you know, if you have to sum it up in a, in a in a in your own way. So I would say really the way to understand these expeditions from North to South and South to North is when you have a region that is very kind of emerging as a geopolitical powerhouse in terms of its population uh, but more 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 importantly in terms of its its politics right when it's led by this kind of uh, imperial polity that is looking to expand and looking to secure you know loot and booty to reward to its uh, to its subordinates um, that's when you see these wars of aggression right, which are expanding at like a very very vast scales because i mean Think about why is it that a king goes to war? A war is a bloody expensive thing to fight. Uh, in t- you have to handle all these logistics. You have to like recruit people. You have to train them. Uh, you have to like convince all these vassal lords to raise their armies and join you. And you have to coordinate them. It takes a lot of effort uh, to go to war. I mean, the pre-modern world, even in the modern world. Um, we have a tendency to think of war as, oh, yeah, no, the king is like, you know, clicking a button or he's waving his hand and it's all like taking care of itself. Or he's, he's, he's like, you know, like Bahubali, like catapulting himself into the enemy city using a coconut tree or something like that. But I mean, these are these are very logistically complex operations. And you're only going to undertake them if you're damn sure there's some profit to be gained from it. Uh, and that there's a reasonable risk of success. And that the risk of failure and the failure can be both external in terms of if you're defeated by the enemy or internal. That, you know, if you're away from your home territory, then your vassals might rise up and kill you. Um, and so very often, um, when these empires do that, it's almost like a way of saying to all their vassal lords, that, okay, you know, stop fighting me. Let's all get together and fight these other guys instead. 
right? Um, and that's basically what happens over the course of the 7th to the 11th centuries. There are quite a few expeditions that these um, newly emerging and very warlike South Indian polities uh, mount into northern India because, you know, these are basically foreign uh, kingdoms to them. Uh, they want to go there, you know, they want to, you know, um, sack and loot. Uh, and there's, again, we have like fairly like graphic descriptions of this. Um, we have examples of the city of Kannauj, for example, uh, being mercilessly sacked in the 10th century. Um, and of course, I mean, we know from elsewhere in the world that when medieval armies went to a foreign territory, they were never very kind to it. You know, they're just taking food from uh, the local population by force. Uh, people starve, uh, people are assaulted uh, in, in, in very horrible ways. Um, and of course, being able to enact this violence successfully against your enemies was a mark of, you know, mar- martial success to the medieval Indian king. Um, and and by successfully undertaking an expedition, you were proving that you were successful, uh, not just as a military leader, but also as a political leader. Uh, so that's why you see these many, many expeditions from South India to North India. They're on multiple occasions, um, they try to reach you know the, the, uh, the confluence of the Ganga and Yamuna rivers. Uh, they are fighting against... Uh, so basically, these two major empires in North India, the Palas and the Pratyaharas, who are fighting like cats and dogs against each other. And whenever there's any sign of weakness from either of them, the Deccan just comes and you know, messes up both their cases and then goes back around, say, uh, just leaving them to like fight over the scraps. Um, similarly, of course, you also have expeditions by the Chola kings uh, of, of the of in the in the early eleventh uh, century. Um, we we know of like the Chola king Rajendra Chola, who actually sends an expedition up uh, along the east coast, uh, all the way up to the Ganga River, and then again comes back. And it is difficult not to see a parallel to the Rashtrakutas uh, that he's trying to almost outdo by doing this. Uh, and in the process, he's also like bringing back. Uh, the waters of the Ganga to kind of sanctify his own temples, his own temple tanks. Uh, so there's there's also there's simultaneously there's the symbolic texture in addition to like the political and military factors that I outlined. Um, there is the, it was so important for these kings to um, show themselves as successful symbols by incorporating uh, sacred ideas by incorporating religion. And once again, you, by by looking at the way that you know medieval powers power king power centers um, used politics and religion together to justify their control and their violence, uh, you can see very, very clear parallels to the way that Indian politics operates today. So, um, you know, yeah, everyone, all, all of you who are listening to this, I would highly recommend that you read Anirudh's book. It's I, I'm sure it's great because from whatever conversations I've had so far, and well, one of the main reasons to also do this podcast with him is to also understand South Indian history better because I believe that is one major uh, black hole in terms of information that we have. Post the 11th centuries, we have these, uh, the, the Yadavas, we have the Hoysalas, and then we have the Kakatiyas, right? So, uh, what what is happening in that 11th, 12th, and the early 13th centuries? Like, how powerful are these empires? Because in the 12th centuries, you also have, we generally also talk about Khilji and the likes, right? But we completely underestimate and like, you know, why don't really talk about what is happening in South India. Like, how powerful were they? Like, how powerful were the Kakatiyas at their max? I mean, they were certainly a very, very significant, um, at least a regional power, if not if not necessarily a global power. Um, I mean, there's a, I feel like in there's this hindsight bias, right? We're like, oh, you know, it is inevitable the Delhi Sultan was going to win. You know, they were so powerful and so grand. But the success of the Delhi Sultan was actually based on these, these very, very contingent factors that could very easily have gone very nastily wrong for them. Uh, military historians have shown that, I mean, the the military technology of South Indian kingdoms at the time 
was very much on par with the Delhi Sultanate. You know, they had the same kind of uh, armored cavalry. Uh, they had the same kind of connections to global trade networks that they were using to kind of like get war horses and so on. And the military culture was very much, very much geared around cavalry, just like the Delhi Sultanates was. Uh, and they were also experimenting with new forms of governance. I talked about how innovative the Kakatiyas were, for example, and how they are transforming their landscapes and all that. Um, so as much as we learn about the Khiljis and Tughlaqs, we have to remember that the South Indian kingdoms were not any kind of pushover. They were also similarly innovative. But what set Delhi apart was that they used cavalry archers to an extent that uh, South Indian kingdoms didn't use. Um, and the reason why they were able to do that was because they were able to import both the horses as well as, you know, the mercenaries who were riding these horses from Central Asia at a scale which South Indian kingdoms could not necessarily do. Other, of course, is something that later South Indian kingdoms like Vijayanagara would correct because they're more globally connected. So they do manage to invite that, but that's a bit of a tangent. Um, basically, the reason why Delhi is so successful against South Indian kingdoms is because they 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 rely very extensively on detailed local intelligence. Uh, they strike exactly when the kingdoms are distracted, you know, when their main armies are campaigning elsewhere. Um, they very quickly just move and they uh, force the king, they, they surround the capital, they starve it out before any uh, relieving armies can come. Uh, and then they, uh, you know, they, they force the king to pay tribute to them in horses. Um, and the horse was the backbone of these medieval Indian kingdoms. That's how they fought wars against each other, against rebels, against uh, rebel vassals in their own kingdoms. Uh, so to be deprived of the horse was very little to be deprived of the, uh, the foundation of your state itself. Um, and that's what really leads to them collapsing so rapidly. In terms of concrete numbers, it's difficult to know because, again, we don't have like detailed contemporary Kakatiya records. You know, they will just claim all these over-the-top things about how they had an army of millions and millions and millions, which is much more than the <laughs> than the land could ever have supported at the time. Uh, so we don't know the exact strength, but clearly these were not some kind of pushovers. They were recognized as very legitimate, legitimate threats uh, by their contemporaries. And um, the fact that the Kakatiyas actually survived in the face of uh, repeated aggression from Delhi and that they continued to like, you know, try and make conquests and they continue to keep fighting should tell us that, you know, these are very, very powerful kingdoms indeed. Uh, is there anything else that you want to maybe add to this before we are done, to, especially to the listeners and people who are interested in South Indian history as in what they can uh, maybe look at? For context, always. Of course, I mean, I would say read my book, of course. Uh, <laughs> of course, yeah, that, that's um, without saying. But in addition to that, uh, Noboru Karashima, uh, who's this esteemed Japanese professor, has some really fantastic books on South India. Read his uh, Concise History of South India. It's a little dry, uh, but it's got the most up to date possible research and ties into his dynamics in a lot of detail. Uh, depending on, again, your, your appetite for academic work, you should also read uh, Daud Ali's uh, Courtly Life and, uh, sorry, Courtly Culture and Political Life in Early Medieval India. Um, because it really, really helps you understand the way these people thought about themselves and their place in the world uh, beyond these kind of stale stereotypes that we have of them as, you know, just being mm. uh, Sanskari kings who want to do Sanskari things. Um, right, these, wow. Sanskari are, kings, huh? yeah, these are people who are, you know, brilliant, ambitious, erudite, and also extraordinarily uh, powerful and capable of like acts of cruelty and violence that are really like be horrifying to us today. Um, and to try and really understand them on their own terms without kind of projecting our modern biases onto them uh, and seeing the parallels between their world and ours, I think really helps understand uh, ourselves, where we come from and where we need to go a lot better. Thank you so much. Also, everyone, please uh, buy Anirudh's book, meet him, get his autograph on attend our walks whenever you can in Hyderabad. Uh, Anirudh will also be on a JLF Jaipur Lit Fest panel very soon. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond Channel. You can listen to more episodes on our website sunoindia.in or on any other podcast app of your choice.